0: If anything ever happens to you, God forbid, I promise you that, uh, that
1: I'll give Diana
0: a million dollars.
1: Who are the connections, the people, that matter the most to you? Everybody's famous today,
0: you know, whether you're a sportsman or a reality star, or whether you happen to be a politician.
1: Hey there, I'm Mark Fennell, and this is Hey, Guess What? A podcast all about the biggest moments in your life, and crucially, the people that you wanted to share those moments with. Today, someone who has been connecting with Australians through our TV screens for over 50 years. And look, TV itself has changed a lot over the years, but once upon a time, there was just one screen in the house, that central point for entertainment and information in the home. And the stars of that box, the people we invited into our houses through that screen, they were so entrenched in Australian culture that they really only needed one name, Graham. Bert, Yana, and Ray. Ray Martin is a five-time Gold Logie winner. He's been part of iconic shows like 60 Minutes, Midday, A Current Affair, hell, even Carols by Candlelight. He has been there for the Olympics, the bicentenary, so many elections, world-changing moments like the aftermath of the September 11 terrorist attacks. It's a legacy in broadcasting that will probably never be matched. But to him, he's just Di's husband, a dedicated granddad to Arlo, and a dude who likes to dabble in a bit of photography. But he is a journalist. That is who he is at his heart. It is a profession, it is a job, a vocation, yes. But it's what makes him connect to people.
0: Yeah, I fill out the form on my um, passport saying journalist and this is occupation. I tell people, uh, call me a journalist. I call myself a journalist. Um, I always enjoyed telling stories rather than uh, breaking news, as much as I love breaking news, but I'm a, I, I tell stories and that's what journalists do.
1: Mm. It's funny, looking back over your interviews, what I note, I guess, is that, and again, feel free to just correct me if I get this wrong, but it seems like for you in large part, journalism is a means to connecting with people. Because it seems like that's something that you seem to extract an enormous amount of joy out of, understanding people, what makes them tick.
0: Yeah, you've got to... At some stage, if you reach my ripe ripe old age, um, you've got to come to terms with yourself, what you can do, what you can't do. I can talk to people. I enjoy people. I talk to people on buses. I connect with people on aeroplanes. I talk to people, not just in Australia, where they might know who I am, uh, but anywhere I go. And invariably, I'm called just to have a chat. (laughs) Um, And uh, so I do connect. And uh, at the end end of an interview with Joe Cocker or with... um, Prime Minister or whomever it might be or someone who's difficult, um, people say gee you got him on a good day and I said no no I didn't. I connected, actually uh, you know worked hard at this, I did my homework and I and I respected his position or her position and uh, and worked at that so I think that's part of the strategy in terms of connecting but I think overall I'm, um, uh, I don't have any trouble uh, people talking to me seriously in the same sense I have good fun in a recent ABC comedy series I did um, that was good fun as well so it's, I think you've got to be, you know, a, a man for all seasons.
1: It was, brilliant. And let me just say that to your face. I thought it was fantastic well, and the, wildly strange it, it, was it,
0: well, it was wildly strange. I agree. And, uh, <laughs> and the first program I walked out, my wife had been looking at it in another room and I uh, walked out and she said, what was that? And, uh, and <laughs> well, I, I said, the same thing, I said I'm not sure. I'm not sure what that was. But, um, uh, you know, uh, again, working with people who were 25 to 35 and who were um, very funny, but also very smart, um, was a joy.
1: So much of this show is built around the notion that there are defining moments that change people's life and I feel like you're one of these people for whom there's probably like a dozen to choose from. But if you had to pick a defining moment, a moment where a profoundly different ray went in and then came out the other end, is there a moment that springs to mind?
0: Oh, yes. I, I was driving past down William Street the other day and um, and I went in there back in 1965. I went in there for an interview for what was called the ABC Talks Department. The Talks Department is, I guess, the current affairs department now, but I saw this job for a uh, for a talks officer grade one in the ABC and it involved interviewing people and involved travel, involved uh, news stories. And I thought that sounds interesting, without knowing much about it. And I went along and I was um, uh, sat down in, a, in an office and I did uh, interview with two of the senior men at the ABC at the time and I had to go up the road and, and do uh, read a news bulletin just to read, for them, uh, put it down on tape and uh, do a quick interview with someone up there. And mm. I read the news bulletin and I stuffed it up. And, uh, and I stumbled a couple of times. I said to the guy who was a, you know, a, a more senior talks officer than I was about to become, um, I said, can I do that again? And he, out of the goodness, generosity of his heart, he said, yeah, why not? It probably saved my life. Yeah, and uh, wow. I did it a second time. I don't think it was very good the second time either. But for some reason, um, they used to select two cadets a year in the ABC, and, and I'd, I was subsequently told that there were about 480 applicants that year. Why I got the job, I don't know, but that changed my life totally otherwise. Today, I would have been a retired history lecturer, probably, and I would have loved it, and I would have been pretty good at it um, because I love history. But um, but I wouldn't have seen the world and other things I've done. It was and that was just a, a, a moment uh, I was going past with my wife the other day, as I said, and, uh, and I looked at them and thought, wow, if they had not liked the colour of my shirt or not liked the uh, the news mm. bulletin that I read, I would have happily gone off and you know bought a Citroen and uh, and, <laughs> and been be an, <laughs> be, be an academic, not Citroen, right? Come and been an academic. Yeah, we got it driven around there somewhere on that.
1: So after that interview, who was the first person you called? Who was the first person you told about her? My mum. Yeah?
0: Um, she, um, she left school when she was 13 and uh, she was uneducated and yet, you know, one of the smarter people in, in, I'd ever met in my, in my life. Um, and, uh, and she, for some reason, wanted me to go to university. A, a kid coming out of working class Australia, a boy should have really gone to tech. I should have done that. But she, for some reason, wanted me to go to university. And uh, when we were living together in Tasmania... Um, um, mm-hmm. She at one stage I wanted to leave school early, leave high school, to go and get a job and get some money because it was just she was working as a machinist in a a knitting factory, and uh, just the two of us. And um, she didn't talk to me for three days when I suggested I would give up school and uh, and and go and get a job. And she said basically, you know, I haven't sort of worked my fingers to the bone for you to throw away an (laughs) opportunity. So when your mother doesn't talk to you for three days, you uh, you do what you're told. And uh, so I went back to school, and it was and for some reason she wanted me to do this so she sort of thought I could do anything uh, even though she had done nothing apart from you know be a, the best mother in the world um but um that that's a sort of I think that's the encouragement and that's the sort of foundation that we all should be lucky enough to have
1: listening to you talk I'm reminded of the fact that I, I quit university after three months to take a job in television and my mum who is the first of her generation coming from India and Singapore to have gotten into university, it was about three days before I could finally convince yeah. her that it was a good life choice. <laughs> yeah. you, you've mentioned your, your working class upbringing and I think it's one of those things that perhaps people don't know nearly as well as they should, that your background actually was pretty rough in the early days. Uh, you're, you've got three older sisters, uh, you... Ended up having a... Your relationship with your dad was pretty rough in the early days from what I understand. He was quite violent, to the, only to the extent that you're happy to share. Can yeah, no, you I'm happy
0: I'm, I'm happy to... Uh, I'm completely innocent. I was the child of this marriage and so, uh, you know, I had no role in it. But, um, no, he wasn't violent to me or my sisters. Um, he was... Uh, started to get violent towards my mother towards the end of their relationship before she and I fled. Um, and But he was... Uh, alcohol would would be the trigger. Um, and that was a time when we fled, literally fled, um, uh, and went to Tasmania um, so she could be as far away from him as possible um, because he'd threatened to kill her. Um, uh, in those days, there was no support system, which we remember, um, would look after, um, abandoned women or women who, you know, decided to run from a, a domestic violence situation. And so it was incredibly brave. Most women put up with it and, uh, and then in many cases got bashed or died. And, uh, and mum decided she'd had enough. And so that wasn't the case. But, um, so sh- to go away as a single woman with a, uh, I was 11 at the time when we left, um, was, was a tough gig. And uh, and she, you know, to put me through school and put me through uh, all those sorts of things she did was uh, remarkable. But as I say, she, she wouldn't have cared at the end if I was a, a, a garbage man as long as I was sort of having a go and doing my best at what I could do. So if you've got to trust anyone, it's the dog and your mother. I think that's
1: who you trust. <laughs> as a kid literally fleeing, how much of that was explained to you? How, how aware of the circumstance were you?
0: I oh, know very aware at 11 you can't physically stop your father from, uh, he was much bigger than I was uh, from, uh, you know, bashing my mother, which he did only uh, say so when he was drunk, which became an increasing problem um, but um, uh, so I knew we had to go and uh, and yet uh, we'd been to a magistrate uh, in, in the year or so beforehand when mum uh, first sort of charged with uh, domestic violence and the magistrate Magistrate said, you know, do you want to go with your mother or your father if there was a split? And I said, I want to go with both. And as an 11-year-old child, you do that.
1: And this is also how you got your surname, isn't it? Because initially you were Raymond Grace. Yep. Do you know how your mum decided on Ray
0: Martin? Yeah, no, I do. Well, it, it, it's family folklore, but um, we were we left one night. Dad was a travelling salesman at that stage, and he was going away for um, a week, and that was the time that mum decided she was going. and um, And so we went to Sydney as a central station, and uh, and we had to get a ticket to Adelaide. We were going to mum had a relative in Adelaide. We were going to visit, and um, and we're at the station. You had to fill out a form uh, for the uh, for the tickets, and uh, and so mum feared that if she put Grace down there that, uh, in fact, uh, Dan might get a, a private detective and they'd find who were So she had to have another name and uh, nearby was it was a name Martin, which we think was a real estate office. My <laughs> elder sister was there at the time. And so just put Martin down. It doesn't matter. Well, wow. So, so Martin, there's
1: no, like, family? It was literally no, just picked out of the air? No, it was just
0: picked out of somewhere at Central Station. There was Martin and that was really just going to be a, a nom de plume for the moment. And, um, <laughs> and stuck. in Mom, it Ma- yeah, stuck and, it, and uh, I can't imagine being anyone else now.
1: Central Station has an interesting... Role in your history uh, when things <laughs> got a bit rough. I understand there was a few nights you ended up as a family sleeping. Yeah, in yeah
0: well, again, it's hard to believe, but um, I never in my life thought I was I was underprivileged. I never thought I was mm. poor. And yes, uh, as we moved around from town to town, I was in thirteen different uh, towns um, uh, where Dad was changing jobs um, until I went to high school. So we stayed in various, you know, a church up in Scone. Um, we we you know, Mum was cooking on an open Outside this church where we were sleeping, we stayed in a, a one-bedroom policeman's place up in the snowy mountains, up in Urangabilly, uh, which again was you know just a large room and a one-bedroom uh, in there that was all a tiny uh, policeman's um, quarters, etc., um, etc. Et so when we came back to Sydney, um, my next sister and I and my mum and dad uh, were sharing one bed in the in the Salvation Army uh, place, and so but we we were there for probably three or four weeks, and uh, and we each day would go down the mum. Takes us down to the housing commission office, and we'd sit there, my three sisters and I, and we were all scrubbed up. Anyway, as part of this, uh, uh, a sort of strategy was worked between my mother and one of the the clerks down at the housing commission office, and so um, they said we should go and do something drastic, like sleep on Central Station. So um, my mum, my next sister, and I went down to Central with our suitcases, and uh, and we put two of the benches up together, the bench seats up together, and we slept there the first night, and um, and we went back the next day, and uh, to the Housing Commission office and then back the next night when the police came along. I remember quite distinctly yeah. and um, I was about eight and uh, they came along and asked what we were doing there and uh, we said we had nowhere to live and nowhere to sleep and uh, so they put us in the uh, the police car and took us down to the uh, Housing Commission office and walked upstairs and said, you know, we need to get these people some housing and so we ended up one of those Nissan huts out at a place near Liverpool which is called Hargrave Park yeah. and we just lived in a Nissan hut down one end. There was um, – it had uh, two bedrooms uh, – and a chip heater, and a, and a little bit of a, a, a few a few meters of garden out the front, and that was we suddenly got to heaven. It was that was a Fairdickham house, and so that was that was the story. But we're two days on on Central Station. Every time I go past Central Station, I, I don't quite know where we were sleeping, but that's where we were for two nights.
1: Ray is a pretty open book, which I suspect is why he has been so successful to some degree. In fact, when he gets critical letters from people saying that he wouldn't understand their hardships, he often reflects that if they only knew these sorts of stories, the ones you're hearing now. From his unusual life growing up, Ray found himself with a place at the ABC at the age of 19. He married his wife, Diane, at 23, and then by the extremely young age of 24, he was sent to the US as a correspondent but nobody was enjoying his rise more than his mum, Mary. I interviewed
0: uh, Audrey Hepburn, um, and, uh, and mum was beside herself. Mum couldn't believe. Uh, you know, Audrey Hepburn was a character from the Women's Weekly that my mother had seen, so her son to be I- interviewing this this uh, goddess uh, was extraordinary. So generally, mum was uh, extremely proud.
1: Mm. It also speaks a little bit to how fame has changed a great deal, that characters of that time people like Audrey Hepburn had a had an aura around them that that famous people today I'm not going to say it's less than, but it's certainly different. The accessibility of it is, is different as well. A character like Audrey Hepburn would have occupied a different position in, in people's imagination at that point. Yeah, no
0: question, no question. Audrey Hepburn was a different kettle of fish to, you know, famous people in Australia today. Um, and that's why my mum was so in awe of her. But but similarly, without social media, without the, the sort of media we have today, um, you only got the information from newspapers or from magazines, um, uh, maybe radio, and of course then along came television, which, uh, which made everyone famous. As I say, because fame is so omnipresent now, there are so many famous people. It's um, it's no big deal, but um, but certainly for someone like Don Bradman, mm. um, you know, his son changed his name um, in Adelaide because it was too tough being the son of Sir Donald Bradman. So I think fame can be uh, you know just a terrible uh, uh, agony um, if you like, and uh, and people who don't live with it. My wife, for example, would only allow um, one photograph a year at the time that I was a Channel Line of, of her, She would say, well, you know, you decide, let them decide whether I want it, but I'm only doing one a year. Um, because, <laughs> you know, she didn't want... Uh, she wasn't part of uh, of some contract with Channel Nine. She was her own person and is her own person. And so in that sense, she didn't want um,
1: the sort of baggage that came with fame, so to speak. But Ray did become famous. Very, very, very famous. One day, Ray got a phone call. It was from Channel 9 and it was to work on a brand-new show called 60 Minutes. And from then on, every Sunday night, along with George Negus and Ian Leslie, Ray Martin reported from around the globe on the issues, the people and the places that mattered. For a journalist, that job is like a passport to heaven. But in a sense, it doesn't really matter unless you're making an impact on the people at home. One in particular I remember...
0: Doing a story about the Middle East, and we were in Israel, and um, <clears throat> it was—it must have been early 1980s, and uh, and Lebanon had exploded, and uh, and Israel was basically in uh, you know under constant threat at that stage, and um, and we went to do a story, well, a really simple story, with an Israeli family and a, a Palestinian family in um, in Jerusalem, and uh, and the Palestinian family had owned Palestinian family had owned property there for centuries, and uh, and when the uh, the Jews came in when Israel was established as a a nation, um, that land was taken. Suddenly I found that we had an audience of several million people, you know, Two families telling their story of what they'd gained and what they'd lost, and how the, the, mm. the war, why the war was happening in Israel. Um, we got an enormous number of letters, and people were seeing it for the first time. It was just, I thought, the fantastic thing that commercial television can do um, and um, and does, and certainly sixty minutes did in those early days. That, you know, here this war had been going on at that stage for thirty years, um, but um, but people were seeing it for the first time through the eyes of human beings rather than politicians and, and uh, military men. Etc. And I thought that was probably one of the most that reminded me that, hang on, we're not, we're not just sort of talking to an abyss. We're not talking to an empty space here. We're talking to people who listen to what is being said. So it was just, I thought that was really, for me, it was a revelation. I thought, wow, hang on.
1: Yeah. And it is just that power of, humanising, yeah, an issue, making it yeah. about people. Yeah. The, the job did have its dangerous components to it and there is a, a fabulous story which I'm going to get you to confirm or deny that the, uh, the head of Nine at the time, Sam Chisholm, promised your wife die, uh, that if you did die, pun uh, unintended, <laughs> he would pay die. <laughs> One point two million dollars.
0: Yeah, no, it was a million dollars, but ah, um, oh, she shortchanged. Yeah, she shortchanged. Shortchanged. Yeah, she got shortchanged throughout her life. But um, uh, no, I'd been to, um, I'd been to the Middle East. I'd been, and we had, we're in Beirut, and uh, in Beirut, uh, when the civil war was was going up at that stage, and, and very heavy. Uh, the American embassy had been blown up, and um, and we were fired at when we were at the American base, and then on the way back to, on the way out that particular night, um, we'd um, uh, we were standing. at. The checkpoint. We had two taxis we were all together, four of us from 60 Minutes. And, uh, there was a woman standing, a, a refugee. The refugee camp was just nearby, and a woman st- was standing nearby. And, uh, she had all her goods and chattels on her head. She was standing on a median strip in the middle mm. of this. Uh, we were about one kilometer from the airport and a checkpoint. Um, and, uh, and the shelling started, and uh, the woman was directly hit. She was hit by one of these shells. She was there one minute; the next, she was in a thousand pieces, uh, scattered around. It was just as close as that. And uh, and the the guard at the checkpoint said, "Go, go, 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 go!" And just let us go. And we went, and we uh, we were at the airport. We watched this uh, just just the firing, the shells going from one side of the valley to the other, as the various the the militia groups were fighting against each other. And uh, at that particular time, we got out that night, and um, and we'd been in. Saudi Arabia b- before that and uh, on the same trip, um, and on the same trip we were in Northern Ireland As again and Northern Ireland was probably uh, the scariest place ever it uh, was ever in during those times of the troubles and uh, and so I had three of those big stories and I came back and Chisholm invited me up for a scotch one Friday night and said, asked me how it was and etc and I told him uh, in, in essence what it was it was uh, it was fairly uh, exciting and um, and so he said, well you know, let, me, let me just tell you that 's what he said you know if anything ever happens to you, happens to you, God forbid." Um, uh, you know, I promise you that, uh, that I'll, I'll give Diana a million dollars. Now, a million dollars is and was an extraordinary amount of money and, um, and I couldn't quite believe it and he sort of shook hands. There was no contract but I had not a skerrick of doubt that he would have paid it had I mm. been knocked off somewhere.
1: What are the images that stay with you that you haven't been able to shake
0: um, I think Arche and the tsunami um, was, um, I went up to Arche for uh, when I was uh, uh, on 60, on Current Affair and we took the program out there for a week and that's, there were 200,000 people killed on, in that particular natural disaster. That was probably the worst thing I ever saw in my life and these were men, women, children um, and old people and etc. Um And we were, you we were conscious that these poor people had lost everything. And we'd go to, uh, you know, just go to, in doing stories up there we'd go into a house they'd welcome us in and, and the man would be sweeping the mud away from the house and I'd think well wow, he must be and he'd smile and, and greet us and uh, and and then I'd, I'd say well you know I would think he was lucky um, that maybe he'd missed out and then he'd tell me he'd lost his wife and his children and his sister and his brother etc and yet he was still welcoming us and trying to give us rice and trying to give us this sort of human dignity um, that was and, and generosity that, that just completely floored me
1: In your On-camera career, uh, I'm not going to read out the grand total list of famous people you've interviewed, but, you know, to take a few, Elton John, uh, Tom Cruise, Jennifer Lopez, the list goes on and on and on. Mm -hmm. What I'm fascinated about is who were the surprises?
0: Wow, lots of surprises. Um, Paul Hogan said to me once that um, on air... Um, he was there promoting one of his lesser films. Um, <laughs> he said, look, I wouldn't be talking to you if I didn't have something to flog.
1: Yeah, um, which is he, so true and, of some yeah. But it's so
0: true of everybody. And so I think rather, there were very few people amongst those that I developed relationships with. Michael Crawford, the fan of the opera, was one uh, I, whom I did. Uh, and some of the sports men and women, um, Kathy Freeman, I got really close to, I interviewed her a number of times and she's a, a wonderful, wonderful uh, Australian. Um, but um Generally, I saw my job as look. They're here to flog something. They've got a record, or a show, or a film, or a book, um, and they really don't really want to know me. So I'll uh, read the book, and I'll pay them that respect, and uh, and I'll do as good an interview, and I'll I'll be sensible about it. Um, And if I can make their life a little uh, less painful, um, and and less tedious, then that's what I do. And so you know, I did interview with Michael Johnson, the uh, uh, probably the greatest 400 meter runner of all time, who was a a pig of a man, and. uh, as it turned out. And uh, and I was doing a 60 minute tour with him. And uh, and he, it was a day in the life of, and he'd won a gold medal in Sydney at the 400. And then he won the 4x400 four with a relay team. And he'd won um, a, goal, a couple of gold medals in the previous Olympics in Atlanta. And um, I had this huge respect for him as an athlete. And uh, he didn't want to be there. And so I um, I said, look, you know, I'll try... I know this is sort of boring, but uh, I said I'll try and make it as uh, as least boring as possible. And I said, you know, I just want to talk about you. I want to talk about Cathy Freeman. I want to talk about Sydney Olympics. And he said... Uh, I couldn't give an F about uh, talking about me. I've talked about me. I couldn't give an F about Kathy Freeman. I couldn't give an F about uh, the Sydney Olympics. And I said, well, it's <laughs> going to be a good day. <laughs> and it was a good day. And the one thing he didn't want to talk about was drugs, which is what the Americans had been, you know, I think five American athletes had been sent home from Sydney because of drugs. And, uh, and so I was determined to talk about drugs. And that ended the interview when I did the, but it was one of those where, you know, I was conscious he didn't want to be there.
1: Did you at least get a good walkout that
0: moment? I got moment? a great walkout. I got, I got, and he, he stood above me actually when I asked himself, Several times about, they said, please don't ask questions about the drugs. And I said, you know, I have to ask because yeah, it's that, your was, job. that was that was the on. story. And uh, anyway, so I did, and and he got upset, and uh, he stood up, and 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 I thought he sort of started to raise his fist, uh, and uh, and he was a big, strong um, human being, and um and I thought we um, oh, had three cameras, and I thought please hit me. Yeah. But uh, don't hit me hard. Yeah. And, he hit me hard, me hard next enough to week. make a great
1: promo, that, but not yeah, so hard that the damage is irreparable. Absolutely.
0: Three <laughs> cameras would have covered it all, but uh, he didn't. He just sort of stormed out and uh, never to be seen again. Yeah. If you having a conversation, if someone can say, you know, what used to amaze me about Midday, for example, mm. about television interviews is that I could be sitting with you and you could be a superstar. Um, Let's then, assume that
1: I am for arguments. Huh? Uh, that's right, <laughs> as, as you are. Um, then,
0: um, Then... Uh, you don't have to tell stories about um, you or your, uh, your terrible childhood or about your father or whatever. Um, and yet people would start to, again, if you ask the questions right, and again, if they trust you that you've done this, um, they start to open up. And I, I... Many times in my life I've sat there thinking, why are you telling me this? You know, why are you actually being this open, this honest? And it becomes the camera almost, or the microphone, almost becomes a a therapeutic device. It becomes something by which, um, you know, people suddenly feel the need to talk.
1: Ray's connection with many people, from movie superstars to everyday Australians, it made him a household name. Something that you can imagine, a young Raymond Grace growing up in temporary housing commission homes, could never have imagined would happen. But his fame also meant that another memory from the past would come calling. I got a
0: call from um, uh, the gatehouse uh, saying that um, that, um, a bloke was down there and he he said it was my father. And I'd not, you know, I'd not seen my father since we left well, You know, thirty years earlier, maybe almost thirty years earlier, and um, and I said no, just tell him I'm not available, and uh, and they so they told him that. And uh, when I was leaving, I sort of stopped and talked to the, the guards at the front, and um, they said, I oh, know he was here. He said he was your father. He's they said he was. We think he was sort of half drunk uh, at the time, which uh, which is interesting. Um, and I sort of left it at that. Um, I thought that at this stage, um, you know, it would almost like rubbing in my mother's face if I renewed a, 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 a Relationship. I had simply told kids when I was at school that he had died in a car accident, um, and effectively he had. And uh, and I thought, no, you know, the caravan's passed on. It's not time to uh, to resume a relationship now. You know, after I'm uh, reasonably successful, I've grown up, and uh, and all the problems my mother had dealt with all the you know the growing up problems. And so I thought, no, you know, if my mother hadn't been there, I might have talked to him and uh, and i just really it was out of uh, out of uh, uh, you know concern for my mother that i didn't suddenly resume a relationship that had broken down 30 years earlier
1: your mother passed away in the 90s really at the, uh, it, what many people would regard as the height of your fame and i'm wondering after all these years now how much dna of, of mary's personality is still sitting here in front of me now how much of her is in you
0: Oh, I, I can only, I mean, scientifically there's heaps, um, obviously, um, as it w- is with my father. Um, that's there. But I mean, I remember being with mum once in the near in the central, uh, when before before we split. And um, uh, and I was, uh, we went across the park at central in Sydney and uh, and there was a, a bloke who came up and asked for some money. And mum was there with a handbag and a hat and, uh, and, and I was there in probably school clothes. But um, mum sort of stopped and went to a purse and mum had nothing and she gave him, uh, you know, five pence or something like that in those days. Um, and as he said, thank you, ma'am, and he went away. And you didn't see many beggars in Australia in those days that I remember. And she said, uh, as we walked away, like a lesson from your parent, and she said, now, you know, you must all, if someone comes and asks you for money, you must always give it to them because it's, she thought it was somewhat demeaning to have to ask for money, and et cetera. And she said, you must always give it. Well, it's one of those things where I say, oh, I'd walk walk past somewhere and, um, you know, and say, no, no, not. And then I'd get five pass the paces past them and say, oh, "Hang on, where's Mum?" So I'd go back and give them something. I, I, I do uh, by nature, but so it's those things that it's it's all the things. But I think everyone could say the same thing that your version of little things that we don't notice only when you become a parent, as you are now, that you you realise is an extraordinary influence that you have on your children, yeah. whether you mean to or not. And it's it can obviously affect us in terms of our attitudes towards race and attitudes towards women. I think
1: I did want to ask you about your relationship to another woman, a Camilleroy woman by the name of Bertha, because a few years ago you discovered that you had... Uh, indigenous heritage, and I'm fascinated to know how that came about.
0: My sister had done, my sister Kay, um, who was a middle sister, she had done some family history, and um, and she discovered that there was this woman Bertha who uh, who was an Aboriginal woman um, who was seemed to be somehow a member of the family, and uh, and then we we tr- it turned out that she had had two children with um, my great great grandfather, who his name was William Lamey, Bill Lamey, He was sent out from Ireland um, on a as a He'd uh, he'd robbed a, uh, an Irish priest, uh, an Anglican, of, yeah. uh, of ten quid, and was sent out to Australia um, for life. And uh, and so he subsequently became a free man and, uh, and lived up there as a shepherd. But he had two children with this one woman, this Bertha, who t- ended up being um, a, a bit of a princess, not a, almost a queen of the Camilleroy people up there. She lived to one hundred and four, uh, and and so my great. Great grandfather would have been, uh, living with this woman. He, um, he died in 1851. In 1850, he did his will and, uh, he had, put in the uh, comment there that he, he left and he made a fair bit of money at this stage and he had a property um, and uh, with uh, about 400 head of cattle and 50 head of horse which was made him reasonably wealthy and he said in the will um, I leave all my goods and chattels to my beloved children. Now these beloved children were in fact what was disparagingly called half-caste at that stage because they were had had a black mum and a white dad and, um, and yet this is clearly a political statement his Irish English mates at the time Time who were uh, involved in things like the Malt Creek Massacre and who were actually wiping out these savages who were up there, um, would have been saying to him, we've got to get rid of them, it's either them or us, which is sort of attitude of this frontier yeah. violence that we now acknowledge but we used to put under the blanket. Um, for, for William Lamy to have actually stated on a document, you know, I leave all my goods and chattels to my beloved children, was a statement of support and, you know, obviously love for them. So he went up, it would already been up in my estimation anyway because he'd uh, he'd been quite a... Uh, quite a rebel in Ireland, um, um, and I asked my mother about it, and uh, and she was the least racist person that I'd ever met. I mean, she, um, uh, I never heard her utter a racist word in her life, and uh, so I said, you know, why didn't you tell us about this? And she said, oh, it didn't matter. Now it did matter. Um, it did matter because, you know, if you're working class, Australian suspecting the bush, um, the last thing you needed was the tag of also being indigenous, because that uh, you know the, the blackfellas lived on the other side of the river, and they lived down in the camps, etc., and they were hunted out of town when it got dark in places like Gunnedah.
1: That was sort of where I was curious to go, because I was like, how do you relate to it now? Given it was a a, a discovery that happened later in life, I mean, do how do you relate to? I guess. Your Aboriginal heritage at the oh, moment. Oh,
0: no, I'm very proud of it, as I'm very proud of my Irish heritage. Um, but, um, I'm one sixteenth Aboriginal, uh, as I say, I'm extremely proud. Um, and I, oddly enough, had been involved since I've started journalism, and especially in Western Australia when I first, I went there, as I say, when I was first graded in the ABC, and, uh, and I did some stories there about, um, you know, about the racism. I couldn't believe it. Coming out of uh, country New South Wales, which was certainly racist, um, there's no question of that as I grew up in terms of blackfellas and whitefellas, go to Western Australia or go to Queensland and it's apartheid. It was absolutely separate peoples. And, uh, you know, there were blackfellas in in Meekatharra where I first went, um, there was one blackfella pub and the other two pubs were for whitefellas and never the twain should meet, um, etc. And, you know, it was just I hadn't seen that sort of uh, apartheid um, as in South Africa in Australia. And I was ashamed uh, of what was happening in my country, that it existed. Um, and then I went to America, and then I and I was there at the, at the civil rights movement, and I was there in the you know late '60s, in the '70s, when uh, when civil rights uh, really broke out, and when, and did lots of stuff with the Black Panthers and people like that. So I became aware of the you know, Black Lives Matter, if you want to use that phrase, um, and and far more than I'd ever been as a, a young Australian. And so when I came back um, in sixty minutes and so on, I I was deeply involved in the. I got I was um, a appointed to the Reconciliation Council by um, the Hawke government initially as the, the sort of taken journalist. Um, so I was involved in that before I discovered I had Aboriginal heritage. And, uh, and that was simply, and, and the Blackfellas said to me when I, you know, I did a, a big piece for the Women's Weekly about my connection and um, told some of those stories and
1: they said, oh, we knew.
0: <laughs> it was always, <laughs> how the bloody hell did you know? How did you know <laughs> what I didn't know? Oh, we
1: just knew it was that sort of connection. There is this uh, particularly amazing quote in the Australian Media Hall of Fame, and it goes like this. If Ray Martin says it is, so it is. Now, for a journalist to engender that level of trust these days is... Well, it's almost impossible. I mean, in the age of fake news and misinformation. So where does Ray see the responsibility of news media in 2020? Well,
0: it was always regarded just slightly above used car salesmen Mm. and below (laughs) policemen. Um, It was always, it was never uh, top of the tree uh, along with, uh, you know, with uh, lawyers and doctors. Um, So we kid ourselves that we think journalists have been respected or liked um, because we're shit stirrers, Mm. to use the phrase, um, that upsets people. Um, I think today is, um, you know, journalists tend to be more, Better qualified they were when I was there. Um, ABC would only uh, select you if you had a degree at that stage, but um, and newspapers didn't. So uh, you almost didn't need education to be a journalist. And when I first started, um, today you've you know you flat out getting if you've got a PhD. Um, <laughs> whether there is worldly, probably not. Um, um, but it, but but so what do I think in, in terms of it? It's I think um, social media is a beast. Yeah. Um, uh, that we can't control, um, and we see with the sort of stuff that Donald Trump does um, how vile it can be, um, and how um, uh, yeah, there's no there's no check of it. Um, but it, on the same breath, it allows uh, people to do reporting that um, uh, at least uh, set off lots of stories um, because people do notice things and they report them. And in the past, no one's bothered to follow them up. Today, photographs that are that are taken of uh, extraordinary events, you know, such as Black Black Lives Matter, such as the riots in America where you see the police brutality and thuggery, Um, that wouldn't have happened in my day. It would have been just journalists reporting it perhaps without the sort of pictures that you see today, the video stuff that people whip out their phone and take. So I think there's some value in in popular press um, if that's what social media is. Um, I think there's real value in everyone having a voice. Um, I think the voices just need to be uh, at least um, uh, go through some sort of sieve or at least they need to be... Be censored a bit at least, you know, rather than people saying the sort of lies that, that the Donald Trumps of the world say and, and lesser people. Um... The days of being able to, you know, go to New York and, and you know, uh, investigate a story—I think they've gone because instant news requires the poor journalists who are there for uh, from Australia to, um, to do radio, television, podcasts, um, you know, social media. There's no time to stop and really um, understand it. You've got to be adept enough to get it on the run, which is what they're doing. And I think that can be that can be a problem. Um, but I think, you know, I what do I do? I set out to I, I set out to tell stories, um, and that's what I still love doing. Um, in journalism, um, at the same time, uh, the reason I don't think I ever thought about doing talkback radio seriously is that I'm not convinced that I that I'm right. I'm not convinced that I, my opinion on something is right. Um, so I do tend, as a journalist, tend to like the idea of not balance because some things are. There's no there's no balance to uh, Black Lives Matter. There's simply there's no balance to the treatment of Aboriginal people in Australia. It's simply been wrong. It's been totally mm. unbalanced. So there's you can't say, on the other hand, you know, we uh, we looked after uh, Aboriginal people in the in the frontiers of Australia. Well, no, we didn't. We killed them. We just, we killed them and isolated them and we, it was a terrible uh, display. Uh, and so don't try and balance that saying, well, you know, settlers were, uh, were hard done by or they, you know, they had to survive or whatever it might be. You know, what we did was shameful. Um, and so I think journalism isn't about balance in the sense you don't, there's some stories that are simply black and white. There's no grey areas about them. And so I think journalism should say that. I don't want people to know, know how what I think on issues, if if they know what I think, well, then I've, I've betrayed my game. My job is not to put my opinion up. My job is, because I'm not a talkback radio host, my job is to ask the questions and tell the story. The biggest crime you can commit as a journalist is to be boring um, and, or, or, or is to be worthy. You yes. Know, to, to be worthy, which is so much of, you know, what ABC was in the old days, um, rather than be true.
1: Your f- self-effacing nature will fundamentally... Uh reject the premise of this question, but I'm going to go with it anyway. Go for it. <laughs> Why do you think you have managed to have such a long-lasting connection with the Australian public?
0: Um, it's in my DNA. Um, I, I am. Um, I wonder whether I would have been the same had I come out of a, a privileged existence. Um, I'm not sure. And yet people like, you know, there, there, there are people who come out of privilege who have a heart and have a soul generally i don't think they do generally I
1: think. <laughs> wow that's bold that's yeah so
0: no, generally cool. i don't think they do i mean if you if you believe you're born to rule um, yeah. then um, then i think your attitude is very different um Um, So I think I've asked that question, as I say, about privilege, um, whether I would have had the same attitudes towards... I tend to be... uh, I support unions. I support underdogs. I support um, the down and out far more before I support someone who's made it. Um, That's just in my nature. Um, But similarly, I support people who succeed um, out of their own energies and their own get-up-and-go. I mean, uh, there's a great, great man named... Named Alex Campbell, who was the last man on Gallipoli and uh, he died at 106. I did a couple of things with him and he was a water boy at Gallipoli and uh, and he somehow survived and he got to 106 and... um uh, and I interviewed him as he was. We did some research, and if you t- took the Turks and the Brits and the French and the Indians and, and the Germans all on Gallipoli Peninsula, there were about a million men there. And uh, and he was the last one surviving we could find. And uh, and I told him this, and he said, "Oh, oh gosh," he said, oh, "That's terrible, that sort of stuff." But he was. He, he, I took my my son down, who was eleven at the time, and we we for the interview. And he met him, and I thought, you know, you you need to meet this hero. This bloke was a was a nobody in the war, and yet he was a wonderful man. And um, so, anyway, see, uh, we were packing up the lights at his house after we did the interview, and he'd barely—I uh, got—I got, I got one-word answers almost from him all the way through because he was so old and he was—he uh, was so weary. As we unpacked the lights, Luke, my son, was off to one side, uh, and I noticed Alex talking to Luke. Luke, and, uh, and I thought, "Hang on, you—I didn't get that. What's he? He's talking <laughs> to my eleven-year-old son." So, we, anyway, we packed up, and we jumped in the plane, and we we're coming back to Sydney. And I said uh, to Luke when we were coming back at one point, I said, oh, "What did Mister Campbell say to you?" And he said, oh, he just talked to me about the war. And I'd seen him <laughs> talking. And I a bloody hell. And uh, oh, was so, yeah, so I said, so what did he say? He said, um, I asked him what it was like. And, he, and anyway, he, Mr. Campbell had said uh, that it was terrible and, you know, he was against wars and you should never go to war. And then I said, so what else did he say? He said, he said to me, um, son, can I give you some advice? And, uh, and my son just said, yes, Mr. Campbell. And, uh, and he said, uh, have a go. <laughs> have a go. And I think that's probably it. That in terms of, uh, you know, the people I have most respect for are those who have a go, Even not the people who are the most brilliant or the people who are the most successful, but people who have a go.
1: So if Ray Martin were to run into young Raymond Grace at a Rabbitohs game at the age of 10 or 11, yep. what would you want young Raymond Grace to know about what his future was going to entail? What would you arm him with for his future? Apart from have a go, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'd certainly
0: say uh, to anybody, have a go, uh, male or female. Um, it's, it's, it's a famous bit of graffiti I once saw um, in London of uh, life's not a dress rehearsal. Um, <laughs> it's not a dress rehearsal. You've got to actually have a go and you've got to, you don't get a second chance at this. You have your second chance at, at life, if you like, at the various things. You can, you can fall over and, 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 and bloody your nose and get up and go on with something, but, uh, uh, but you don't, you know, we don't come back in this world again. And so I think that if you, uh, if you don't have a go, if you don't do the things you want to do, if you don't think do things that please you uh, within reason, um, then I think you uh, you're probably Probably, you know, not much above a vegetable. You probably uh, ought to be in the garden rather than on the street.
1: And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the sound of a man having a go. Huge thank you to Ray Martin for his time. And of course, thank you to you for connecting with and listening to this podcast. Uh, If you're hearing this for the first time, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or any of your favourite podcast apps each episode we have unique stories of people, some famous, some not so famous, connecting with the most pivotal moment of their lives. And if you like the show, uh, you can leave a review. Uh, It's helpful. means other people can find it. My name has been Mark Fennell and thank you for joining us for Hey Guess What, which is presented by Telstra and I will catch you next time.